0: Well, next week is going to be a very exciting week. It's March to the Manger. Now, I'm new to this here at Eastwood, obviously, but I want to give a little thought to you about this March to the Manger. I do know what it's about. It's about giving a specific and special offering so that we can reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is what's called the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. There will be on either side of the building, there will be a manger and each person will come and every household will come and they will drop their offering in that particular manger. Now, You'll find in your worship guide, there's a, um, an envelope that you can use to put that in. So You want to put that in there and then you'll come down from the balcony and we'll each march through and that's why I call, it's called March to the Manger. Please know that this is not about giving an offering, it's about changing the world. I want you to understand something. The International Mission Board does a work that is beyond comprehension. Many scholars would say it is the greatest mission endeavor in human history, and I would have to agree with missionaries all over the world. In 2018, 45,256 baptisms were recorded by the International Mission Board. That's around the world in countries that have no belief in Christ, who question the existence of Christ, who misunderstand who Jesus was. And yet we find that 45,000 people came to Christ through the offering you're going to be giving to This church alone has at least four families that are on the field. This church alone has at least four families that are on the mission field. That's astounding. That's something you can be very proud of. The average to support one missionary annually is $59,500. As we give our offering next week, let's remember that we are going to be sharing the gospel with the world through literally sending someone who can look in someone's eyes and show the love of Christ and teach them who Jesus is. That's pretty exciting. So as we come next week, week, let's come and let's knock that $75,000 goal out of the park and go far beyond it for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's do that together. Let's do that together. Hey, this morning, you probably remember we're in a series on what's the big deal about Jesus. I shared with you that kind of how this one got going through my mind was when I was a campus minister on Western's campus, a student came to me and we were talking about a buddy of his who had a great future financially and lots of uh, impressive opportunities and God had called him to the mission field and that young man said that he was going to the mission field rather than become a multimillionaire. His dad was already in that category and he had everything to get him to that place and one of his buddies came to talk to me about this decision he had made. And in the process, this young man looked at me and he said, What's the big deal about Jesus anyway? That's a very fair question for someone who doesn't know Christ. What is the big deal about Jesus anyway? This morning, I want to talk to, to you about why Jesus came to earth. Uh, you know, um, have you ever noticed that some things just don't make sense? and Some why questions have got to be asked. Like, for instance, somebody asked, Why is the time of day with the slowest traffic called rush hour? That's a fair question. Why isn't there mouse-flavored cat food? Makes sense to me. Why did kamikaze pilots wear crash helmets? That's worth pondering. Why don't you ever see the headline, Psychic Wins Lottery? I'd ask that question, but the one that concerns me most is, why is it that doctors call what they do practice? (laughs) When things don't seem to make sense, it might be the right time to ask the why question. And Why is this? Because the motive behind the decision tells you the heart of the person who made the decision, especially when it seems like an irrational decision. For instance, it doesn't make sense that some of us less attractive men are married to beautiful women. Why did they marry us? Well, they fell in love with us. It makes no sense that they would marry us. Love trumped logic. It doesn't make sense if you've ever worked on a college campus that when it's 35 degrees outside, college freshmen wear shorts and t-shirts to class. Why do they do that? Either it's the only thing that's clean, and if it's a guy, it's the only thing that doesn't smell like a farmer's armpit, or it's what's in style. Peer acceptance trumps logic. Some things just don't make sense, and one thing that doesn't make sense is that Jesus would leave a place where there's no sickness, nor crying, nor depression, nor darkness, nor pain, nor death to come to planet Earth. It is very important that we ask the why question and understand why he would do such a thing. So in the next few minutes, I want to share with you four reasons that Jesus came to earth. First of all, he came to save us from our sins. Don't lose me. Those of you that have been in church way too long just heard a cliche that would turn you down. You, well, I've heard this. I've talked about this. Here's what Matthew one twenty one says. Joseph is hearing from an angel. Because he's about to marry the Virgin Mary. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. For he will save his people from their sins. First, let's dive a little bit into what it means, who that are his people. He will save his people. What you find in the Gospels is that there are two lineages that are listed. One is in Matthew, and that goes back to Abraham and one is in Luke, and it goes back to Adam. You have two lineages of Jesus. One goes back to Abraham, which reminds us that Jesus came to bring the good news to the Jewish community. That was his first target audience, was the Jewish community. Now, if we look closely at Scripture, we find in John that it says, His own did not receive him, yet to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. The Jewish community overall did not accept Jesus' Messiahship, and so they rejected him, and the gospel came to those who were Gentiles. That's us included, those who are non-Jewish people. So those who accepted Christ, no matter who they are, what kind of people group they're from, are his children. He came so that we could be saved from sin. Now, let's face it. We've all sinned. Is that a fair assumption? We have all sinned. That's the bad news. <laughs> The good news is that Jesus came to save us from those sins. Let me see if I can illustrate this. So a judge in Great Britain had a homeless man come before his court with a charge of stealing. The man had clearly stolen what he had said was stolen. He was guilty of his crime. The judge was compelled by law to find the man guilty. He was required to do so. Why? Because he was a just judge and the guidelines were in place. The man had broken the guidelines and a just judge does delve out the punishment in the right way. But he also felt compassion for the homeless guy. So after finding the man guilty, the judge reached into his own pocket and took out the money that was required and paid the man's fine for him because he could not have paid it. God is a just judge, so he can't ignore our sins. He also loves us and he wants to pay the payment for our sins. Now, there's only one payment that could suffice for our sins. And that was the death of his son, Jesus. You may recall on the cross that Jesus' final words were what? It is finished. Repeat that with me, will you? It is finished. That phrase actually means it is paid in The last statement that Jesus made was, hey, I've paid the price. The debt has been paid in full. You need hold no one else accountable that accepts my grace. I have paid their required debt in full. So the primary reason Jesus came to earth was to be, be the payment for our sins. Now, what was his role in this? Let me take that a step further. He was to be a ransom for you and me. He was to be a ransom for you and me. Mark 10, 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to be served, listen, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You need to understand this term to understand how Jesus could be a ransom for us. The term was used to describe the price that was paid for a slave who was then set free by the one who bought him. It was the price that was paid for a slave who was then set free by the one who bought him. In essence, I give you this, you give me the one I've purchased, and then I set him free. It could go something like this in my life. We were being held by the slave master named Sin. God comes along and says, what will it cost me to own that slave, Rick Howard? I want to purchase him, then set him free. There's no dickering this day. There's no explanation necessary. God already knows what the price will be. He had known it from before time began. I can imagine the slave master saying something like, there's no payment worthy of freeing this one. He placed himself in this situation through his own action, his own choices, his own sins. God softly with a broken heart speaks his words. What if the king of kings, my only son, the sinless creator of the universe were to be the payment for this one is that a trade off you'd make Satan the most sacred for the most sinful that's the trade off that God the Father made Isaac Watts the great hymn writer understood the contrast between the sinner and the Savior the difference between God Almighty and little me he wrote these words in one of his classic hymns, Alas, and did my Savior bleed and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Now, some of you all have been singing that song for a while, and you thinking to yourself, that last phrase didn't sound exactly right. That's because at some point, somebody came along and changed it because they had a self-esteem situation they wanted to deal with. They didn't want anybody to leave church feeling like, oh my gosh, we're lowly in God's eyes. The way that it was rewritten was to say, "For such a sinner as I, such a sinner as I." You know this was a sad choice, a very sad choice. The hymn writer knew precisely what he was saying. He knew precisely why he chose that specific word. You see, there's actually something called worm theology, and worm theology basically states this: in the presence of holy God and in the power that I acknowledge in the presence of holy God, I am nearly nothing. And when we look at the payment that was paid for our sins in the presence of holy God, who Jesus is compared to who we are, it's only then that we can understand the price that was paid so that we could know Jesus Christ. That someone of ultimate significance would come and pay for us so that we could become significant in His eyes. That's how much Christ loves us. Someone came to me one time, and I was talking about Jesus' sacrifice, and they asked the question, would you describe Jesus' sacrifice? I thought for a moment and asked if I could get back with them, because I tried to begin to describe what the cross was like and realized there's no way that you can do that. You don't have the knowledge necessary to really do justice to what crucifixion is. You know, John 19, 18 simply says, there they crucified him. There they crucified. I gotta tell you, sometimes when I read that passage, it makes me angry. It really makes me angry. It makes me angry because it doesn't say enough about what Jesus had to suffer for us. There they crucified him. So, what does that mean? I mean, is that, I mean, that's kind of it. There they crucified him. Until we understand the the depth of pain and suffering and acknowledge it, we'll never really understand how much Jesus loves us. We'll never understand it. Let me talk to you a little bit about crucifixion. Crucifixion actually began with the Persians in the 6th century B.C., 600 years or more before Jesus' birth. Alexander the Great... Brought it to the Eastern Mediterranean countries in the 4th century BC and introduced it to Rome in the 3rd century BC. The Romans spent 500 years, listen closely, perfecting crucifixion. Perfecting crucifixion. These are the goals of crucifixion to instill the deepest levels of pain for the longest period of time before someone dies, to instill the deepest levels of pain as long as possible until someone dies. That's what crucifixion was about. For hundreds of years, they worked to perfect accomplishing that at this point in history. And that's the cross that Jesus went to. Now, I'm going to do a very long reading. Uh, There's a fellow who wrote a great writing that gives us really understanding of just how brutal this murder was. Hang with me. You'll see on the screen a depiction of a crucifixion that will help you understand what I'm speaking of. It is arguably the most painful death ever invented by man and is where we get our term excruciating. It was reserved primarily for the most vicious of criminals. The most common device used for crucifixion was a wooden cross which consisted of an upright pole permanently fixed in the ground with a removable crossbar usually weighing between 75 and 100 pounds. The victim was placed on his back, arms stretched out and nailed to the crossbar. The nails, which were generally about 7 to 9 inches long, were placed between the bones of the forearm and the small bones of the hands. The placement of the nail at this point had several effects. First, it ensured that the victim would indeed hang there until dead. Secondly, a nail placed at this point would sever the largest nerve in the hand, called the median nerve. The severing of this nerve is a medical catastrophe. In addition to severe burning pain, the destruction of this nerve causes permanent paralysis of the hand. Furthermore, by nailing the victim at this point in the wrist, there would be minimal bleeding and there would be no bones broken. Did you get that? Minimal bleeding. We die because of lack of blood in our system. The positioning of the feet is probably the most critical part of the mechanics of crucifixion. First, the knees were flexed about 45 degrees and the feet were flexed, that is, bent downward at an additional 45 degrees until they were parallel the vertical pole. An iron nail about 7 to 9 inches long was driven through the feet between the second and third metatarsal bones. In this position, the nail would sever the dorsal pedal artery of the foot, but the resultant bleeding would be insufficient to cause death. The resulting position on the cross sets a horrific sequence of events which results in a slow, painful death. Having been pinned to the cross, the victim now has an impossible position to maintain. With the knees flexed at about 45 degrees, the victim must bear his weight with the muscles of the thigh. However, this is an almost impossible task. Try to stand with your knees flexed at 45 degrees for about... Five minutes, and you'll get an understanding of what this would be like. As the strength of the legs gives out, the weight of the body must now be borne by the arms and shoulders. The result is that within a few minutes of being placed on the cross, the shoulders will become dislocated. Minutes later, the elbows and wrists become dislocated. The result of these dislocations is that the arms are as much as six to nine inches longer than normal. With the arms dislocated, considerable body weight is transferred to the chest, causing the rib cage to be elevated in a state of perpetual inhalation. Consequently, in order to exhale, the victim must push down on his feet to allow the rib muscles to relax. The problem is that the victim cannot push very long because the legs are extremely fatigued. As time goes on, the victim is less and less able to bear weight on the legs, causing further dislocation of the arms and further raising of the chest wall, making breathing more and more and more difficult. The result of this process is a series of catastrophic physiological effects. Because the victim cannot maintain adequate ventilation of the lungs, the blood oxygen level begins to diminish and the blood carbon dioxide level begins to rise. This rising CO2 level stimulates the heart to beat faster in order to increase the delivery of oxygen and the removal of CO2. However, due to the pinning of a victim and the limitations of oxygen delivery, the victim cannot deliver more oxygen and the rising heart rate only increases oxygen demand. So this process sets up a vicious cycle of increasing oxygen demand, which cannot be met, followed by an ever-increasing heart rate. After several hours, the heart begins to fail. The lungs collapse and fill up with fluid, which further decreases oxygen delivery to the tissues. The blood loss and hyperventilation combines to cause severe dehydration. That's why Jesus said, I thirst. Over a period of about several hours, the combination of collapsing lungs, a failing heart, dehydration, and the inability to get adequate oxygen supplies to the tissues cause the eventual death of the victim. The victim, in effect, cannot breathe properly and slowly suffocates to death. In cases of severe cardiac stress, a victim's heart can even burst. This process is called cardiac rupture. Therefore, it could be said that Jesus died of a broken heart. To slow the process of death, the executioners put a small wooden seat on the cross, which would allow the victim the privilege of bearing his weight on his buttocks. The effect of this was that it could take up to nine days to die on the cross. But not only that, for those who were on the cross for an elongated period of time, oftentimes birds would come and pick at them and animals would come and jump on them and try to feast on them. But to make it even more humiliating, people were actually crucified, not in a loincloth, but totally naked That's how much Jesus loves you and me. That's how much Jesus loves you and me. But why did he do it? Why did Jesus do it? Now, I want you to hang with me for just a moment. Please don't lose me now. I'm talking to at this point to Christians. We often talk about that Jesus came to die for our sins so that we could have salvation. That's true. We often say that Jesus came so that once we've accepted his offer of love and grace, that we could live peaceful lives even in the midst of difficult times, even in the midst of suffering. But sometimes we Christians miss the fact that Jesus came to die so that we would live differently after knowing Christ than we did before knowing Christ. Let me say that differently. Let me say that again, I mean. So that we would live differently after knowing Christ than we did before knowing Christ. 1 Peter 2.24 says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Why? So that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. So that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. He didn't die just so that we might experience his love. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins... And live for righteousness. That word die is a unique one. This is the only place it's used in scripture. It means to be away from, to be missing, or to depart, or to cease existing. What he's saying here is, once you came to Christ, he anticipated, he anticipated that you would live in newness of life and not continue to live a sinful life. You would not accept the sins that you struggle with and say, well, that just happens. I can't get over it. Or I just don't know that I could ever be a good guy. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't misunderstand me. You'll never be perfect. I've told you that many times in my months with you. But when we settle into certain sins and say that we can live no differently or we live live in such a fashion that our desires drive us and we let our desires take over us, it is at this point that we are not realizing the great price that Jesus paid. And so we live in such a fashion that we no longer bring glory and honor to Him. In fact, we diminish the power of His name in the eyes of those who are unbelievers. Listen, if you've been baptized, you were probably baptized while hearing these words. Buried with Christ, rising to walk in newness of life. Buried with Christ rising to walk in newness of life. This phrase comes directly from Romans 6, which reads like this. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, we are certain he was raised from the dead. By the glory of God the Father, through the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We too have the power to walk in a different way of living. That's what we're learning here. We buried the old self, and when we came up out of the waters, we chose at that point to live our lives in such a fashion that our lives bring glory to God the Father. That's what the passage is telling us. Some years ago, you may have seen it on television. You may not be old enough. I may be the only guy in the room old enough to remember this, but... Down in Florida, there was a moving of the Holy Spirit that was far beyond many had ever seen in their entire lifetime. This great revival took place and thousands were saved. And it was such an amazing event that on cable television, nationwide, they were showing uh, some of the services. And in the services, they often had very long services simply because of the baptisms that they had. During those baptisms, prior to someone going into the water of baptism, they would be standing in the baptistry, much like your baptistry here the pastor would be standing with him that was about to baptize them and he would ask them this question. What is it that you're walking away from that you're living with right now? In essence, what sin is it that you're engaged in that you're walking away from after you come up out of the waters of baptism? People would say things like, I'm in a homosexual relationship. I'm an adulterer. I'm embezzling from my company. I lie to my family. And the list went on and on and on and on and on and on. You know, it was interesting to me that they weren't embarrassed by making these statements. you know why? Because they knew what was about to happen was they were no longer going to live in that lifestyle anymore. They were going to separate themselves from living in that way. Nothing to be embarrassed about when you're changing, right? When you're no longer going to do that thing. What we learn here is this very important point that we must walk in newness of life. Why is that? Because when unbelievers see us acting like unbelievers rather than like believers, but they know we're believers, they doubt that Jesus is Jesus. There's a passage in Roman that when I saw it, I memorized it, and it stings me every time I see it or quote it. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. As it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. As it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. What is that passage telling us? It's telling us that when we say we're believers, or people know we come to church, we bow our heads to pray at a meal in front of those who are unbelievers, and they say, well, they must be Christians. In essence, we're boasting in the fact that we are followers of Christ. But when we break his law unapologetically with no level of repentance, the unbelieving world says, look at those people. It can't be real because if it was real, they'd live and they'd act differently. They'd live and they'd act differently. If Jesus really does transform somebody's being like they tell me he does, wouldn't they be a little bit different than everybody else? I was speaking to a young man uh, in a church not too long ago that I was working with and in our conversation he said he didn't think his father would ever come to Christ. He had come to Christ later in life and he'd been talking to his dad about Jesus. He said, I just don't think my dad ever will. And I looked at him and I said, man, through the power of the Holy Spirit, anything is possible. Anything is possible. He said, yeah, but you don't understand. There's a man who was a deacon in a church that my dad knew. And they worked together for 20 years. And that man would go to church and put his face on and put his big smile on and put his big Jesus thing on, teach a Sunday school class, the whole deal. When he came to work, he cursed like a sailor, drank like a fish, and ran around on his wife. My daddy may never come to Jesus because that man proved who Jesus was in his mind. And my daddy believes that Jesus cannot be a reality. My brothers and sisters, we need to walk in newness of life. We need to walk in newness of life. I'm never going to leave you hanging there. If there's one thing I've hoped you've learned about the truth of the gospel, it is this. It is that there is always grace. We need to be set free from sin. And if you're a believer, you always get grace. See if I can illustrate this. There was a little boy who was visiting his grandparents, and they gave him a slingshot. So he went out and practiced in the woods. He couldn't hit anything he aimed at. I mean, nothing. He missed everything he shot at. When he came back into the farm, he saw his grandmother's pet duck. And he just put something in the slingshot and went like that. And if it didn't kill that duck, I mean, just dead as a doornail. The only thing he had all day was his grandmother's pet duck. That duck fell dead on the ground. And he thought, oh, my goodness, I'm going to be caught on this one. So he ran and grabbed that duck and hid it behind the woodshed and went on about his business now a few minutes later his uh, grandmother uh, said to him uh, to his sister Sally uh, let's go wash the dishes and Sally said Johnny told me he wanted to help in the kitchen today don't you Johnny she had seen what had happened and she went over then and whispered to Johnny remember the duck remember the duck later grandpa asked if the children wanted to go fishing Grandma said, I'm sorry, but Sally needs to help me with some stuff. And Sally smiled and said, that's all taken care of. Johnny wants to do it. Again, she whispered to him, remember the duck? Johnny stayed while Sally went fishing. After several days of Johnny doing all the chores and Sally's too, he finally couldn't stand it. He confessed to his grandmother that he killed the duck. And she said, I know, Johnny. I know. She's giving him a hug. I was standing at the window and saw the whole thing. Because I love you, I forgave you. I just wondered how long you'd let Sally make a slave of you. You know, Jesus knows that you struggle with sin. He knows that sometimes you mess up. Satan knows it too. Satan is that little voice that says to you, remember the duck? Remember the duck? Actually, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, remember the lie? Remember the lust? Remember the gossip? Remember the pornography? Remember the adultery? Remember the divorce? He's making you a slave due to your past sins. Listen, if you're a redeemed follower of Christ, keep this in mind. Jesus does expect us to strive to, as Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery, sin no more. At the same time, Scripture says He knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. That Psalm 103. What He means by that is, I know you're human. I know you're not going to be perfect. I get it, so I give you grace. And so He tells us through His Word that once we choose to follow Him, He says, I will remember their sins no more. When you were saved, God chose in that moment because you were then one of His children to keep no record of your sins He has forgotten the sins you have committed and will forget the sins you will commit, but that doesn't mean you go and purposefully sin and just act like it means nothing. We need to consider repentance. You know, we Baptists don't talk enough about repentance. We talk a lot about everybody else's need to repent. We think repentance only happens at the point we come to Christ. Did you know that when you talk about preparing worship services in generations past, there was a point in every service when there was a chance for everyone to come to the altar and pray a prayer of repentance for the sins that they had committed in the past week. I once attended a church that I had planted prior, and almost every Sunday the pastor said to the congregation, I want you to have peace in your heart with God. So my brothers and sisters, if there's a sin in your life that you haven't repented of, that is, you've realized you're sinning, you're in the midst of that sin, you're holding to that sin, you're recognizing that it is a sin that you're involved in or a sin that you committed, I recognize that I'm in the midst of that sin, but I'm going to turn around and walk away from it. I ask God's forgiveness, then i walk away from it. That's what it means to Repent. I bet there are some in this room who need this morning to repent before God. Believers who need to say, I'm going to turn and walk away from that sin that has entangled my heart and that keeps me from the joy that Jesus died for. I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes if you would. I'd just like to ask you, And in a moment, I'm going to ask you even to raise your hand so I can pray for you. I don't need to know what your sin is. That's between you and God. But I believe there are probably Christians in this room who are living with their sin and have realized this morning, I need to repent. I need to ask God's forgiveness and no longer delve into or dive into that sin I need to turn and walk away. As a brother in Christ, I would say to you, this could be your morning to finally set that aside. I've had many in my life. Decades after I was saved, I had to repent, and it was a new beginning for me with Jesus oftentimes. If you're a believer this morning, and this is where you struggle, and you're going to say this morning, I'm going to repent, right in your pew, you're going to pray a prayer asking God to forgive you, And then you're going to say, I'm going to do my best to walk away from that sin, whether it be gossip or pornography or whatever it might be. Just lift your hand right now. I'm going to pray for you in just a moment. Just lift your hand. I see those hands all over the room. Yes, raise them. Yes, let me see so I can pray for you. Yes, I see you. Yes. Yes, thank you. For your humility, I thank you. For your willingness to live for Christ, I thank you. I want to pray just for you. Father, I'm so grateful in this moment for those who humble themselves enough and search their person deeply enough to understand that they're struggling with something that you long to set them free from. I thank you, Father, that in this moment they've acknowledged this thing. Whatever it may be, Lord, no matter what it is, it's just a sin to you. And Lord, I thank you that in their acknowledgement that you are going to honor them. Father, I'm praying with them right now that they are, in this moment, repenting. Father, for every person that has raised their hand, every person didn't raise their hand, but they know it's them. Forgive us for that sin that's holding us captive. Forgive us for leaning into it when we should have been running away from it. And from this point on, Father, we commit to doing all we can to be relieved of it so that we can know the true peace that you offer us. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, for those of you that may have never come to know Christ, that is, you're not a believer. You've never prayed to receive Jesus as your Savior. It may be this morning that the Holy Spirit has convinced you of that need. What I mean by that is this. You may be experiencing an emotion that you've never experienced before, an understanding about Christ you've never known before. There's something happening within you that you can't explain, and I would tell you that that is God speaking to you. What he's saying to you is this. This is the day of repentance for you. This is the day that you become a Christian. Now, here's all you need to know. It's very simple. I love that God made it so simple. You must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You must believe that he died on the cross and you must believe that he resurrected from the dead. That's your responsibility and God will carry out his responsibility of forgiving you and transforming you. The other thing that you long to do because of that decision is to turn around and walk away from those things that don't bring honor to God and live as best you can for him, to glorify him, to live in a way that honors him, to walk away from sin and do your best To not say, now, be aware of this. Don't don't think you're going to be perfect. I've mentioned that none of us are. But you're going to do your best to live for him. But Him, Jesus in his grace says, I will forgive you your sins if you believe that I am the son of God. You believe that I died on the cross for you. Believe that I resurrected from the dead. If you'd like to receive Christ this morning, if you're not a Christian, if you'll repeat this simple prayer after me, and if you believe every word of it in your heart of hearts, then this morning you'll be saved. God, I know that I'm a sinner and that Jesus is my only hope. I believe He is your Son. I believe He died on the cross. I believe He resurrected from the dead. I'm willing to do my best to live for him for the rest of my life. Thank you for forgiving me of every sin I've ever committed and every sin I will ever commit. Thank you for making me one of your children. Amen. church in just a moment we're going to sing what we call an invitation hymn what does that mean you're invited to acknowledge what God has done in your life by coming here to the front and speaking with me for those of you that prayed that prayer just a moment ago I'd be thrilled if you'd come talk to me and if you don't want to walk up in front of everybody else I'll be waiting for you after the service ends right here to talk with you privately for some of you this morning you realize perhaps that you need to give more to God that you've been kind of living in a way that doesn't honor him. You feel free to come to the altar and pray or if you want to come and pray for someone else who needs Christ. And maybe there's some people in this room or a household in this room or a person in this room who has been looking for the church that they're going to land in and grow in Christ in and acknowledge Christ in and serve him in. I would say to you that as a person who's been here for about eight or nine months, you're going to find one of the greatest congregations you'll find, people who love each other, care for each other, and long to serve alongside you. Feel free to come and speak with me and become a member of this incredible church. Let's let God be God as we stand and let him move amongst us. Join me, please. Draw me close to you Never let me go I lay again to hear you say that I'm your friend you are my desire no one else will do cause nothing else could take your place to feel the warmth of your embrace help me find the way bring me back to you I lay it all down again to hear you say that I'm your friend and you are my desire. No one else will. Nothing else could take your place To feel the warmth of your embrace Help me find the way And bring me back to you Your presence has been in this room all morning long. We're going to ask the ushers to come forward at this time, and this is an opportunity for us to give back to the Lord graciously. So... uh...